0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Chinese has tens of thousands of characters, countless homonyms, mutually unintelligible dialects across an entire country. This is what faced the Chinese thinkers, inventors, and technicians who had to figure out how to standardize, translate, and adapt the Chinese language for a new country, a new century, and for new technologies. Professor Jing Su's Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern, published by Riverhead Books, tells the stories of those who worked to transform the Chinese language for the 20th century. Jing Su is the John M. Schiff Professor of East Asian Language and Literatures at and comparative literature, and chair of the Council of East Asian Studies at Yale. She specializes in Chinese literature, history, and culture from the, from the 19th century to the present, and received her doctorate in Chinese studies from Harvard. A Guggenheim Fellow, she has held fellowships and distinctions from Harvard, Stanford Prison Institutes. Today, Jing and I talk about thinkers and technicians, those who toiled to make the Chinese language work for typewriters, telegraphs, and other important technologies. So, Jing, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast. Perhaps it's it's best to start with the big picture. You know, what is it about the Chinese language that made it so challenging to adapt for technologies like the typewriter, the telegram, or computers?
0: Well, I think the best way to start um, is actually to think it through the lens of the English alphabet. Now the alphabet has 26 letters. And once you learn those 26 letters, what they sound like, how to write them, you can basically compose any word that uses the Western alphabet, right? That's most, that's basically all of your Indo-European languages. So it's actually a very cost-effective way of learning a system of symbols where you attach sound to um, graphs and then begin to use them immediately. Now, Chinese character writing system is quite different. First of all, there is not 26 letters. Um, there's instead tens and thousands of characters. And they d- cannot be recycled easily to compose other characters um, unless you really know the rules and the, how it's composed. So from the start, you can see how you're really dealing with a system that would have had a very difficult time trying to break through the bottlenecks of speed, efficiency, and precision. Basically, all the requirements of any Western um, global communications technology.
1: So, your book starts, I think, with the effort to find a national tongue, um, which ends up being Putonghua. Uh, how does Putonghua become kind of the the quote unquote national language of China, and how did it win out over all the other Chinese dialects?
0: Well, this is a story when we think of, you know, globalizing a Chinese language. So what we don't think about is actually, well, actually Chinese would have to understand one another first and try to figure out a way of communicating given the hundreds, if not thousands of dialects, right? Depending on when and how you count. And the issue with that is the people from the North couldn't really understand people from the South. And this had been amply reported in court documents where, for instance, uh, officials who were in charge of distributing famine relief in the countryside will often complain of the fact that it's very difficult to, it's almost like going to a different country. And so for the Chinese, that was key. Also because if you think about early 20th century, now that was really the awakening of national consciousness, the last empires on its last legs, and people really thinking about how language, right? The, the fact of having an educated citizenry was going to be critical for the modern age. And of course, to do that, you have to make sure that the Chinese actually can learn and that literacy is not going to be a huge stumbling block, but instead a kind of democratized process for all. So the basis of Putonghua really came with these different regions of speakers contending to be that one unifying standard and one of the things they tackled was basically how the national language would sound which took place in the conference in 1912 but this was really due also to the efforts of this one person a kind of old-style mandarin who basically whose career straddled the last empire and the modern nation you know he himself came from a distinguished family who basically served the empire as soldiers so his grandfather fought the British. His own brother died and defending the empire. So this, this particular person, Wang Zhao was his name, uh, was really coming from a long line of people who wanted China to survive. They didn't necessarily think about toppling the government. But of course, you know, he's actually from Tianjin. So when he set out to essentially modernize the Chinese script with what he came back as um, Mandarin phonetic alphabet. Now, I say came back because Wang Zhao was wanted. He, he was actually part of the 1898 failed reform and became an exile in Japan with Liang Qichao. And he was very much wanted as a kind of a fugitive and outlaw. And he stayed in Japan for two years, but then this burning desire in him to come back and somehow save China through its language, um, that, was, that motivated him to basically sneak across the, across the border back to the empire, um, disguised as a Buddhist monk a fake Buddhist monk, of course, from Formosa, from Taiwan. And basically, in the subsequent decades, he really tried very hard and was successful at essentially pushing through his Mandarin alphabet, um, outmaneuvering all the Southern delegates. It was quite, as I described in the book, it was quite a contentious, a dramatic scene, as we know from um, firsthand witnesses who left us these valuable accounts to mine.
1: So let's move on to kind of the first technology you deal with. Um in Kingdom of Characters, which is the typewriter. Um now, as you mentioned in your first answer, you know, uh English has 26 letters, um Chinese has <laughs> tens of thousands of characters, which would sound like it'd make it be very difficult to then translate to a mechanical typewriter. How did the various Chinese inventors um try to solve this problem?
0: And this is really the big breakthrough of the 20th century in many ways because they learned how to think about Chinese character writing differently. So, you know, traditionally characters are kind of tagged or they're organized by radicals, which is really this one uh, particular component of the character that you take as a classifier because you can see it recurring in other characters. And so when the first... Um, uh, inventory was taking the Chinese character these k- radicals were designed to basically um, group them into ways that can be better uh, organized and used Now what the Chinese inventors of type what the Chinese typewriter inventors did was essentially learned how to look at characters modularly in every way so not just one part radicals but also all the other components that could be taken apart and then put back together. Now this was not the feat of one man and in fact, I came across this idea rather fortuitously in, my, in a book I wrote, a more academic book um, in 2010 called Sound and Script in Chinese Diaspora, where I had this chapter on Lin Yutang, who is actually more well-known as a literary writer in my world um, of literary studies. And what I didn't realize and what fascinated me was that he himself was actually dedicated, he devoted his entire life and almost his, all his resources as a writer to inventing the Chinese typewriter. And he was not the first. And it turns out the first typewriter in Chinese, capable of typing Chinese, was actually invented by American Presbyterian missionary, Devello Zelato Sheffield. And back then, if you see a picture of this, which is in the book, you wouldn't believe it because it's not the typewriter the way we think today, with a kind of external keyboard, a corded keyboard to be precise. It instead looked like this huge flat top drum. And essentially, you know, you can roll around this disc on which was etched these rows, you know, these radiating arcs of characters. You have to line up the levers and pulls in order to finally stamp the character. And so, Sheffield's idea was to, okay, you just accommodate the thousands of characters. So this 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 drum typewriter obviously was very, very cumbersome and difficult to use. And what Li Yitang ended up doing was to figure out how to map Chinese onto the alphabetic keyboard by breaking characters down into these components I was just talking about. And so that you can sort of Attach them to the keyboard layout as you have it, and then through these different mechanisms that he comp- he designed, you put press press the keys together and then end up with a with a recombined character on the page. So it's essentially about how to think of Chinese as ABCs and then putting it back together again.
1: And it seems like like the book is filled with all of these examples of um, of people trying having to kind of use all their creativity to kind of get uh, the Chinese language to work in these technologies that seem somewhat ill-suited for it. And a great example of that is kind of how the Chinese figure out how to get Morse code and and the telegraph to work with the Chinese language. Um, How were they able to make, how are they able to get this to work? And why did that run afoul of all these big international telegraph companies?
0: Right. And in fact, telegraphy was really China's first foray into international communications technology, telegraphy being the Internet of the 19th century. Now, the problem is China didn't actually initiate or it was actually not the one who proactively made its foray into the technology, but instead was rather forced on it. Um, After the Opium War, China was rightfully quite skeptical of anything that comes in the West, especially as science technology. So when the Russians and then the French went to the Foreign of Barbarian Affairs, uh, the Office of Foreign Affairs, um, led by Prince Gon, and tried to suggest that China um, let the Russians build a telegraphic line, so on and so forth. The answer was always, no, thank you. We have good men on horseback who are perfectly capable of reliably delivering letters, um, etc., And so for a long time, China actually did not want to get in on telegraphy and wanted to keep it out at all costs. In fact, the Chinese people were not too happy about it either, because when the foreigners and led by the Danes, who were the big sort of uh, the big magnet uh, in telegraphy, um, little known now, but. The Danes were actually at the center of this technology with uh, the the only possible other rival was basically the British. And so the Danes um, decided they would not take no for an answer. And they laid the first telegraphic line um, in defiance of Chinese authorities. But then the damage was done and the Danes also did something else. They knew that they had to somehow diffuse the Chinese popular sentiment against and hostility against foreign intrusion because these telegraphic lines were basically laid down, you know, cutting across countrysides, burial grounds. The peasants were extremely um, skeptical and also suspicious of the fact that this actually ruined the feng shui of their ancestral resting ground. And they thought that was blasphemous. And there's this one part I talk about where a local official reports that to, 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 the, to, the, um, to the center that the foreigners know God, but they do not know respect of the ancestors. So at heart was also this fundamental cultural difference in receiving technology and what they thought um, was the right and improper way of imposing man-made um, inventions on nature and customs and so on and so forth. And so China's reaction to this was well, they had to catch up because the Danes came up with the first set of telegraphic code for the Chinese so that the Chinese could be used in Morse code. And if you ever looked at Morse code, of course, it's these combinations of dots and dashes for each letter of the 26th alphabet, and then another set for numbers 0 to 9. Now, obviously, Chinese, you know, Chinese. Did not operate in Western alphabet, so that was out. And so instead, what the Danes thought of was, well, we we'll just assign random numbers to the characters. And so that's in fact what they did. But of course, they didn't really have the habits. They don't know the linguistic habits of the Chinese, and they didn't do it in the order that the Chinese would be would would it, that it would be intuitive for the Chinese to use. And so, it became very awkward and prone to lots and lots of errors because the procedure itself was quite complicated. It took several steps, right? So instead of just tapping a letter, let's say in a dot and a dash, you have to look up the Chinese character in a telegraphic code book. Make sure you don't make a mistake in matching the code to the character and then memorize that and then try to tap it out. And then on the receiving end, they have to go through the process in reverse. Now, what was worse was at some point in the early 1910s, they came up because the economy has scaled. Western telegraphic companies came up with a new way of pricing telegrams so that the ones that could be deferred get like an extra discount. So, Chinese was further shut out of this advantage because they were still stuck with numbers. And that was not, and sending telegraphing numbers was specifically barred from taking advantage of this discounted rate of deferred telegrams because the Western companies themselves were outlining numbers as kind of a a secret language that Western users used to circumvent the cost of sending telegrams in letters.
1: You know, and this leads me to a question, which is um, you know, in, in kind of reading the book, it sounds like the the Chinese people who were kind of at the conferences to kind of try to carve out the space for the Chinese language, um, you know, obviously they're they're doing this to like to 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 make sure that China gets the exception it needs, but they're also I mean they also seem quite cosmopolitan, they seem quite eager to for China to be part of these international systems. You know, and I guess my question is why didn't China just say we're doing this our own way, uh, international standards be damned. Like, what, why were they so interested in being part of these international conferences at the time?
0: Well, that's the tricky part because if you look at technology, which is different from others, which is the history of technology is always littered with first movers' advantage, right? What is that? You look at the QWERTY keyboard. There's no reason why QWERTY keyboard is intuitive for for us to use now, and it was designed really to help these hammers in these old-style typewriters from sticking together from typing too fast. So they space out the letters in such a way on on the keyboard that no matter how fast you type, it will minimize the problem of the two keys sticking together. But nonetheless, there have been other other keyboards proposed, but QWERTY stuck. Because why? Because we've become completely habituated to it because it was the first one we knew. Same with technology. And that's why ultimately this book ends with standardization and why that's been so important. And having learned all these lessons from telegraphy and typewriting, where Chinese had to fit itself into an existing alphabetic infrastructure, it is ready to bend the the, the stick back. Now, I just want to also say that, you know, we think that China's doing this, China's doing that. But really, this is why the book focuses on these individual innovators who come from a from widely, vastly different backgrounds, right? You have Wang Zhao, who was a traditional Mandarin and not a very pleasant character, quite curmudgeonly. You have Zhou Houkun, who is a young typewriter, uh, one of the boxing, Indemnity scholars, MIT graduate. You have people like... Um, uh, Wang Jingchun, who is the delegate in Paris, who is kind of the old style bureaucrat, but very able statesman in his own right. And then you have others like the librarian Bismarck Du, who basically came from kind a of pretty humble background, didn't really go to Europe or America for education, but got his degree in the Philippines instead. And of course, also the average foot soldiers, the textile factors, the school teachers, the government officials, just about everyone for all walks of life had a stake in a survival survival of the Chinese language. So it's important to keep in mind that this is a probably the least known, but the longest revolution of the 20th century, a sprawling and complicated history that essentially I wanted to retell through the eyes of the people because it really was the true people's revolution.
1: So there's there are a couple of things mentioned there that 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 are some great segues to to my next question. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of standardization. Um, you mentioned kind of the the quote unquote people's revolution, um, which leads me to a question about um, the People's Republic of China, which and they kind of bring in two uh, major, I think, linguistic changes. Um, they well, which are uh, simplified characters. And Pinyin, they change how the Chinese language is romanized. Um, I guess first of all, why did they why did they drive these two changes, and why are these changes important when talking about um, the history of kind of the modern Chinese language?
0: I'm so glad you asked that, because in some ways, this is—if you ask the average person, let's say someone in the field of Chinese studies or even outside—that's probably one of two things they know about the Chinese language. Like, were the characters simplified? And yeah, what is that thing called Pinyin, right, which means to piece sounds together, which is the standard romanization for Chinese that we still use at the moment. Um, And so what I do in weaving these known histories into these unknown episodes, the unknown innovators' lives, is to show how this actually started way before the communists. So the first ones to to, uh, propose simplified characters were actually the nationalists, tracing back to the article that was published as early as 1909. And they actually put forward the first set of simplified characters in the 1930s, but it didn't go through because... The first half of the 20th century was filled with revolutions and wars. The political atmosphere was not stable enough to implement any long-lasting policy change. And so language was inevitably a casualty in that process. And also there was resistance as there has been throughout this process, from within the Nationalist Party and others who felt that you cannot do, you should not touch anything of a Chinese character. There's something sacred and sanctified about how the script has survived all these years as kind of a a lineage and sort of core core, uh, heritage of Chinese tradition and culture. As for the topic of Romanization, also, This did not start with the communists. This built on the earliest, these wide samples we have that you can actually see very well in the Vatican Library in Rome, if you look at the first missionary bilingual dictionaries that were composed of either Portuguese-Chinese or Chinese French or Chinese Latin, so on and so forth. These were the first womanization examples that we have. The problem with these good early efforts by foreigners is that they basically were, they ended up in the empire to spread God's word, but they were, what the kind of Chinese they heard was whatever dialect happened to be spoken in the region they ended up in. So these Romanization schemes were largely um, sort of unknown outside the regions, and even the French, the German, they all had their own ways of romanizing the Italians. so also it was a huge mess even among the European romanization systems to figure out what actually fit Chinese until Wade Giles came along, Thomas Wade, followed by Herbert Giles, his colleague who refined his system. Now Wade Giles stuck with us for a long time, and in fact, if you look at my name, Three parts, all three parts, my name, Jing Yuan Su Yuan, which I don't really use. They're actually three completely different romanization systems. And in some ways, you know, I'm kind of like a living artifact of this history because J I N G is the proper pinyin spelling. Y U E N, however, is a spelling found in Wei Giles. And as for TSU, what that actually just speaks the most random things that could happen in the Chinese Script Revolution, because that was simply homegrown and made up, and it's what happened when my family moved to the United States. So, you know, the idea of unifying and standardizing how Chinese was seen to its own people be easier to learn as in simplified characters, but also with an international face like the Pinyin system that could then engage and communicate with the outside readily. These were the huge projects that have been going on since the 19th century, if not more than 400 years since the first Western missionaries ended up in China and tried to Romanize um, Chinese, largely because they were trying to learn Chinese. So that was not even meant for Chinese consumption, but almost like cheat sheets. So, you know, for centuries, Westerns and Chinese alike have been trying to crack this code and solve this problem. So, but in 1950s, the communists were really the ones who were in position to implement this as national language policies. So I just want to point out that in some ways, what new China ended up doing post-49 was really to bring to fruition this long century quest.
1: And so kind of at... at, at- at the end of the, well, not quite the end, in the last kind of uh, decades of the 20th century, um, we then get to the computer age and having to bring the Chinese language um, into the realm of, you know, digital computers, word processing, uh, character displays, etc. Um, what were some of the challenges of bringing the Chinese language to, to computers?
0: Well, I would say if you look at this, this, this question from the perspective of the present, you will have to recognize that to get Chinese into the computing age, the digital age, right, to be able to use Chinese on your laptop, to be able to uh, uh, use voice recognition, to dictate into your phone, to send, send text messages, um, to do text search, um, to do automatic translations, to do natural language processing, all of these very cutting-edge technologies now, right, that hold the future in 5G, artificial intelligence, so on and so forth, all this had to depend on how do you use Chinese character in the computer? And so that was vital. Chinese information processing was at the center of this Project 748 that I talk about in Chapter 6, which was really China's first national, nationwide large-scale um, technological project to try to get Chinese language into digital form, and they had they faced a critical question at the time because at the time people talked about how well you know. Why don't we just create an ecosystem of Chinese own, a computing system that doesn't you know, put us behind anymore, but something that we can just build ourselves. But the fact is, in the 70s, it's really too complicated. China was not in the position, right, coming out of Cultural Revolution. It was decades behind the West in terms of scientific and technological development. And so, again, the idea was so how do we then somehow piggyback on this global infrastructure that already exists, Right and then think about bending a stick back later, which I think is very much where we are now at the present, where Chinese companies like Baidu basically leads in natural language processing uh, for Chinese language and translate uh, translation processes. So I think the question is what? What of the modern, what in the modern technological world where China is concerned did not rely and absolutely require this first step in the 50s and 60s and 70s, where you systematize and standardize Chinese and then try to put it into the computer. So to computerize Chinese, to digitize the Chinese language was the door that will open to all other doors.
1: You mentioned kind of throughout the interview, kind of about um you, you mentioned the the kind of the first mover advantage, you know, the idea that a lot of these technologies were kind of made in um, in the West. It meant that they were structured around Western languages, specifically the English language. Um, and I guess I kind of wanted to take a bigger picture view, which is it, it sounds like the 20th century has always been this struggle where it's like Chinese has always been um, ill-suited to these new technologies. Um, and I guess, do you think, is it is it, is it entirely due to the, to the first mover advantages or something just about the structure of Chinese itself that makes it tougher to translate to new technologies.
0: I'm so glad you asked that question, because then I could tell you, actually, the original question that led me to write this book was, in fact, what you just asked. Like, is there really an intrinsic technological or cognitive difficulty or challenge posed by ideographic character writing, right? Is it actually harder Does it put us behind to read and learn and think in Chinese as opposed to English? And in pursuit of this question and in preparation before I started writing this book, I actually was um, I was reading very widely and came across the neuroscience of reading, which was kind of a niche or sub area in neuroscience. And I tracked down these two neuroscientists, one in Paris and one here in the United States, who independent of one another, found was working on this idea of, you know, what in our brain allows us to read and what is the path by which we learn language. And if you think about it, the history of writing system is 5,000 years old. So evolutionarily speaking, humans could not have evolved fast enough to have a neural capacity specifically designated to read languages, written languages. So it turns out it is actually built on an earlier infrastructure, neural infrastructure, that is basically there to recognize patterns, to help us orient ourselves in space. And so this idea, I think, of is it really something intrinsic about Chinese that makes it harder to learn or it's more cumbersome? I think it's actually kind of a, a wrong, the kind of false question to ask because it is about kind of adaptation, about what under any environment, like whatever, because if you think about it historically, before the Western alphabet came along, Chinese was actually the ABCs of the region. It was used in Korea. It was used in Japan. And the Vietnamese actually used it as a kind of phonetic writing system to sound out their own characters. So this opposition that is generally Um, uh, assumed between Chinese and alphabetic writing is kind of similar to how we tend to pretend that two civilizations are utterly diametrically opposed to each other and utterly different, whereas it is really a degree of difference. They have lots of shared similarities. Chinese writing system is also phonetic, but it's just not as strong a characteristic as its semantic cues, if you look at the physical composition of the writing system. As for the alphabet, it is not just phonetic. You know, in the beginning, the Phoenician alphabet was also ideographic. The letter A, capital A, was supposed to resemble a house. So, you know, miss this how we came to be so divisive on the topic of linguistic differences is really a reflection of a kind of cultural, social, and political circumstance, which is what I emphasize again and again in the book.
1: And this is actually a. a- Again, a good a good segue to my next question, which is um, kind of where do you think the future of the Chinese language, um, where do you think it's going is going to be, and what's it going to look like? Um, and I'm talking about things like you know um, the development of artificial intelligence, machine learning, better translation, speech to text, text to speech. A lot of these things that are coming out. Um, for mobile devices, for smartphones. Um, and also, I would like to add, also coming out of China. China is, is increasingly a leader in a lot of these technologies, at least on the consumer level. So I guess in that sort of world, where do you see the future of the Chinese language going?
0: Well, I think we're just seeing the beginning
1: of how is re-
0: redefining a kind of uh, digital world That is amenable to it. The kind of question that Chinese had asked in the 60s and 70s: Why don't we build our own digital environment? Because that question was not possible then. But if you look at it now, the past five or six years, all the patents, almost majority of the patents in AI are filed by Huawei. If you walk into a cafe where there's a bunch of Chinese, you know, tapping on their, texting on their phones in China, you know, you think that in the United States we have basically everybody's on a QWERTY keyboard and there's only one way of input. In China, there's more than a dozen. So there are lots of ways in which I think Chinese language is now at a great technical advantage because as learned it from both sides. It's learned it from the Western alphabet and now it knows its own strengths. It is um, becoming incredibly adept at segmenting you know sentences and speech so that you know, when you talk to Alexa or Siri, I mean all these, I think AI rec- voice recognition software that's being so that's going to become so important and perhaps even completely natural to us in 10, 15 probably five in the next five years, where when we come home, we you know let out of vo- give you a voice command for lights to come on, or you know we're we're used to dictating. So essentially, we're kind of returning to a more natural language use environment. Where, I mean, I don't even need to point out. Look at the look at the comeback of ideographic writing or pictographic writing in the simple use of emojis. I think some ways I think we're really coming back to a more natural way of relating to language and reality in the sense that we don't really need to just type in a keyboard. I and mean, that's kind of a constraint, right? A technological constraint for, many, for, 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 for a long time, simply because we didn't have a more natural way of allowing our thoughts to be put into machines. So a keyboard is really kind of an intermediating agent or, or medium, But look at now, you can talk into your phone, you can write on a trackpad, your Chinese character. There are all kinds of different ways you can use emojis even instead of a human language script to convey what you say or what you mean. So I think the world has really become much more diverse and also much more ideographic. I think what I wanted to do in Kingdom of Characters was really to tell a very complicated and difficult history In a way that can engage readers outside of Chinese-speaking circles, because it's a very insider story. In fact, if you just know Chinese language, but you don't know the history and the particular ins and outs of how foreigners and Chinese were alike uh, were involved, uh, and and. uh, both sides were in this race to modernize Chinese for, for future use. You wouldn't really know how these stories actually are kind of revolutionary in their own ways. These individuals that I tell through these stories, but also their innovation and the complexity of how technology builds on one another and how similar, how similar and how much the China and the West, China and the West have been learning from each other long before they turned foes, which is how we tend to think of them now. So it is kind of a a story of um, an argument. The argument of the book is really told through the storytelling. Um, and the idea really is to, in some ways, put our minds, put ourselves in their shoes and vice versa through the lens of language, because it essentially it is a story about China and the West.
1: So I think that's a great place to end an interview with Professor Jing Su, author of Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. Jing, I actually have a few final questions for you, which, is, uh, which are, where can people find your work and what's next for you?
0: Ah, so they can find my. I'm very Googleable, and um, Kingdom of Characters is available on Amazon. Um, you can just type in the search box. <laughs> just don't do it in Chinese just yet, because the Chinese um, translation is is in the works, not quite out yet. Um, even though you can use that to test the Chinese input system on your laptop. Um, and as for my next project, it is actually underway, and let's just say that it will be forward looking.
1: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at NickRIGordon, that's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. that's reviews, plural. And you can find Council Author Interviews Reviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Shirzad Mubinov, author of 11 Winters of Discontent, the Siberian Tournament and the Making of a New Japan. But before then, thank you so much, Jing, for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Nicholas. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me.